Hi, everyone. I'm Beth Kuehl, your executive career coach and host of Breakthroughs, Smart Strategies for Business and Career Growth. Today, I'm really excited to have Rich Divity on our show. Rich Divity is a retired Navy SEAL commander who has a lot to share about attributes, attributes being the indicator of what it will take to become a high performer. In a career spanning more than 20 years, he completed more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan. As the officer in charge of training for a specialized command, Devaney spearheaded the creation of a directorate that fused physical, mental, and emotional disciplines. He led his small team to create the first ever what's called a mind gym. That helped special operators train their brains to perform faster, longer, and better in all environments, especially high-stress ones. Since his retirement in early 2017, Divini has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant with the Chapman & Company Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek, Inc. He's taught leadership and optimal performance to more than 5,000 businesses, athletic and military leaders from organizations such as American Airlines, Myers Inc., the San Francisco 49ers, Pegasystems, Zoom, and Deloitte. So welcome, Rich. It's great to have you on Breakthroughs. And I'm just going to dive in and ask, what inspired you to write this book, Attributes, and to spotlight attributes in terms of that being the driving force behind high performance? Yeah, well, it's uh, it started when I was in the SEAL teams and I was running um, an assessment selection and training course for one of our more specialized SEAL commands. And at this particular course, we, we, could, we took very experienced SEALs and put them through our selection process, and we were getting about a 50% attrition rate, which is, which is okay. That always happens. But we weren't effectively able to articulate why guys were not making it through because, again, they were very experienced SEALs. So, so to say something like, well, the guy couldn't shoot very well or, or couldn't skydive or, or whatever seemed like it was falling on the, on the wrong things. And so I had to kind of look back at our, our basic SEAL training, which you know for the audience is BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Slash SEAL Training, and that's run in San Diego, California. And it's known as some of the toughest military training, military training in the world. And during BUDS, you spend hundreds of hours running around with boats on your head, heavy boats on your head. You spend hundreds of hours exercising with, you know, 300-pound telephone poles and running around with those on your shoulders. And, you know, I thought about my career uh, in the SEAL teams, uh, you know, during which I've done hundreds of combat missions overseas, and I've done thousands of training evolutions, and never on any one of them did I carry a boat on my head or a telephone pole on my shoulder. So, um what that told me was that they weren't training us um, with the, they weren't training us in the skills to be Navy SEALs when they were making us do those things. So what they were doing really was putting us environment in, into environments and situations that were teasing out these, these attributes, these innate qualities that told them if we could do the job rather than how to do the job. And, and that's a big distinction because skills and attributes often get conflated and skills are really, they're not inherent to our nature. We, we, we're not born with the ability to throw a ball or ride a bike or shoot a gun in the military sense of the word. And we're, we're, we're taught those, we can be trained those, and they tend to direct our behavior in known environments. So here's how and when to throw a ball or shoot a gun or ride a bike. And as such, they're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can see them. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. So that's kind of the skills describe the how-to part of doing the job. But, but what skills don't tell us is 
how people operate in stress, challenge, and uncertainty, right? When the environment gets unknown, uncertain, and fear starts to set in or whatever complexity, this is where we start falling on our attributes, our innate qualities, because attributes are in fact innate. All of us were, are born with certain levels of, say, patience or resilience or adaptability. And, and even though there's a, there's a, a nature-nurture combination, right? We develop them over time. You can see levels of this stuff in small infants, and they, and, and, and they don't tell us, they don't direct our behavior in, in, in known situations. They really inform how we're going to show up, right? So my son's level of adaptability and perseverance, for example, informed the way he showed up when he was learning how to ride a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. And because they are hidden and kind of in the background, they're very, they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. You can't sit across the table in an interview process and assess someone's level of adaptability or resilience. They are the most visible and visceral during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress, which made my laboratory <laughs> of the training I was running really such a perfect place to kind of tease these out. So I realized that these were really kind of the inherent drivers of behavior, especially in times of, uh, of stress and challenge. And then when I got out of the Navy and I started talking about leadership and high-performing teams, a common question I would get from you know businesses and organizations was, hey, I'm recruiting people. We're, we're, we're building these dream teams. And, when, and, and when, when, things, when the team gets together and things start to go south and sideways, um, the team starts falling apart. It grows toxic. And I, they said, they said, why was that happening? They asked me. And I said, well, the answer seems fairly simple to me. It's because you were selecting the team based on the wrong criteria. You were, you were selecting the team based on skills and not attributes because skills will only tell us how a team's going to do when everything, you know, when, when everything's going right. And as we know in, in life, things very rarely, if ever go the way we plan them to. So this is why, this is why it's so important. We start looking at attributes in addition to skills. Skills are important, but attributes are really going to tell us a lot more about an individual and performance. Where's the balance between saying, okay, I need people who are born with this, or can we develop it? We absolutely can develop it. And I would say the good news is that we're all born with all of the attributes. The difference in each one of us are, are the levels to which we have each. So for example, if, um, if on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is the highest, I may be a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me without my control, it's fairly easy for me to kind of go with the flow, right? And just accept and kind of just adapt, right? For another person, they might be a level three on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around them and it's you know, without their control, it's, it's much more difficult for them to kind of go with the flow and adapt, okay? Now, there's no judgment in where we sit on any one of these attributes. It'd be like me getting upset that my, my hair wasn't red, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just a natural state. Now, of course they can be developed. And again, you know, uh, time and environment helps develop. If you're, if you're, if a, if a child, for example, is low on adaptability, but that child happens to be a military child, right? And the family is moving around a ton because that's what the military families typically do. That child may in fact develop their, their adaptability as they grow older. It's just going to be a little bit more difficult but the environment will help develop that. However, we can also uh, proactively develop attributes that we might be a little lower on. Uh, the difference is it can't be done the same way a skill can be done, right? And the this kind of speaks to the kind of the back of the envelope test to tell whether or not it's an attribute or a skill, because again, they get conflated. And the test will be just look at, you know, to look at whatever you're looking at and say, can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's likely a skill. If the answer is no, it's likely an attribute. And here's the example. 
if someone if someone came to me and said, Rich, I want to learn how to shoot a gun and and hit hit a bullseye, I could very easily go and teach that person probably within three hours how to shoot a gun and how to hit a hit a bullseye. I mean, because that's a skill that can be taught. However, if someone came to me and said, Rich, I want to learn how to be more patient, right? I can't sit down and teach a class on on how to be more patient. To develop an attribute, it takes self-motivation, it takes self-direction, and then it takes a willingness for that person to deliberately step into environments that are uncomfortable that test that attribute. So someone would have to deliberately step and place themselves into environments that tested and developed their patience, for example. So, so attributes can be developed when it comes to hiring. The while there's no judgment in terms of how we show up with attributes, where we begin to place value on attributes is is dependent on the team or the business that we're hiring for, right? Because the list of attributes required to be a great Navy SEAL is going to be different than the list of attributes required to be a great salesperson or a great nurse or a great teacher, right? So a business or team organization needs to understand what attributes they're looking for, what what's what what are the and what are the priority levels, like what's most important, and then seek to then um, create some environments. And I think you're right. You can you can probably ask some questions about previous experience. The problem is, you just you know it, you know, in an interview process, it's just difficult. It, it environments of stress and challenge and discomfort are just the most real way you're going to see someone react. I mean, someone can sit there and tell a story about a, a rough time and, and, and purport that they were pretty adaptable during that time frame, but that may not be as accurate as what actually happened. So, so you know, peer reviews also helps this process. Other teammates can say, well, that person was extremely adaptable or extremely resilient, um, but they're just, we have to go a little bit deeper. And sometimes our own optimism bias gets in the way of being able to effectively reflect and give, give another person a perception of how they may have uh, shown up, if that makes sense. How can hiring managers use the knowledge that you share to identify these critical attributes that indicate a person will become a high performer? So the fir first thing, obviously, is the, the interviewer needs to know which attributes they're looking for. Okay, and then and once they have that list, uh, they say to themselves, okay, um, let me create an environment or a situation that inflicts a little bit of discomfort so that I may tease that out. So an example would be um, if we want to, if you and I were looking to hire someone who was good at giving sales pitches or, or could, could do sales stuff, right? It'd be very easy for us to say, okay, the interview process for us would be uh, to have this person come in and they're going to give us a pitch on say this coffee cup and they're gonna sell this coffee cup to us. Well, it's inevitable that that person is going to rehearse the heck out of their sales pitch <laughs> to prepare for that interview, right? Mm -hmm. And that person will likely come and they'll give you and I their presentation and it'll probably be great, except it won't tell you and I much other than that person's great at rehearsing and giving a giving a presentation. What we could do, in fact, um, right before that person's about to give their presentation on the coffee cup, we could say, hey, listen, things have changed. You're not going to give a presentation on the coffee cup anymore. You're going to you're going to give us a presentation on this pencil. Right. Um, that throws that person into some uncertainty, some discomfort, and you get to see how they react. Now, at that point, you're not necessarily going to judge. You're not judging anymore the sales pitch itself. Right. You're judging how they react to the changing environment. So now you're testing things like patience and adaptability and, and, um, and some mental acuity things, right? Uh, you could throw an AV uh, problem into the equation, right? The person had planned to give a bunch of slides. Well, hey, you have no more slides. You know, now you have to do it on this, <clears throat> on this whiteboard. So you can start inflicting some uncertainty, some discomfort, changing the environment in ways that tease specific attributes out. And it's a good way. But it's also one of the reasons why I'm in favor of 
organizations that have some sort of, we'll call it probationary period. I don't like the word probationary because that's <laughs> it's, it's somewhat pejorative, but a, 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 a more extended period inside of which someone can, uh, an organization get, can get a sense of a potential hiree because that's gonna, it's gonna allow the organization to see that person in a myriad of different circumstances and environments and therefore get a better sense of the innate qualities versus just the, the ones they might be able to rehearse for in a 15 minute interview. And I would also offer, just because I believe the hiring process is a two-way street, it also gives the, the person who's being hired, looking to be hired, a chance to assess the company, <laughs> you know, because that's because that's the responsibility yeah. of the person as well. This company, I want to see if this company has the attributes and the values that I uh, want to be working with and for. So, so it, it I, I, the, the process is more difficult because you have to look a little bit more deeply, um, and it, it often takes a little bit more time uh, to assess versus just an interview and a resume. In your book, you talk about five categories of attributes. Could you tell us what are those categories and how do they help us to perform more optimally in high stress situations? It's interesting. I did not have the five categories when I started writing. The five categories really kind of materialized as I was writing and uh, it became really kind of apparent and really neat how they kind of started been in these categories. And what it really ended up being was what are the categories that make up grit? The attributes that make up grit. What are the attributes that make up mental acuity? So grit is really our, the way we are able to push through challenge, stress, uncertainty, and fear, and move through these kind of um, almost these short bursts, like gutted out type stuff. That's grit. Mental acuity it, uh, speaks to our ability um, and how we process the, the world around us, the, the way the information comes into us, the way we process it and prioritize it the way we focus and reflect and then how we learn from that experience. Uh, the drive attributes speak to how effectively someone can set and achieve kind of audacious goals, um, uh, long, uh, speaking more towards kind of long-term things, whereas grit might be short-term, drive is more long-term. Mm -hmm. uh, the leadership attributes uh, speak to the behaviors required uh, for great leadership, okay? Because again, leadership is a behavior, it's not a position, um, and, and people don't, don't get to self-designate as leaders. That's like, it's like me calling myself good looking or funny. I don't get to choose. Other people get to choose. Other people decide whether or not we are someone that they choose to designate a leader. And that's done based on the way we behave towards them. So these attributes speak towards behaviors that allow people to make a decision to choose a leader. And the same thing goes with team ability. We don't get to call ourselves great teammates. Our teammates get to call us, call us great teammates. And those are based on how we behave. So those are the, the attributes kind of stacked in these five categories. And it, it allowed for a nice kind of organization and a, and a clumping that kind of began to make sense. Which attribute was most critical for you to survive and thrive as a Navy SEAL? From a career standpoint, the grid attributes uh, in a SEAL career are probably the most drawn upon because those are things like courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resiliency. So I think th those holistically were the most important. I, in the book, in fact, I tell a story, I think it's in cha yeah, chapter two, about a uh, about parachute malfunction and, and, and the way, and I, in fact, I tell the story because I, I actually had a parachute malfunction and the way that, uh, the way that you train for parachute malfunctions is that you kind of think through different uh, scenarios. Well, you're, you're presented different ways that the parachute malfunction can malfunction. There's probably, you know, 10 or 15 different ways a parachute can malfunction. You know? um, but ultimately what's going to happen is when you're in the air falling at 120 miles an hour and something happens, 
you're going to have to, in those moments, and they're very short moments, depending on what altitude you're at, um, figure out what's going on, right? So that's situational awareness. These are the mental acuity attributes. That's situational awareness. What Take all this information, figure out, okay, what's what's actually going on here, okay? Um, then you have to compartmentalize, compartmentalize all that information. So prioritize everything that matters in the moment and then say, okay, what's the most relevant and focus on the most relevant. So, okay, this is what's going on. Here's what I think the problem is. And then I want to decide. So there's decisiveness in there. Um, and then I'm going to act. The acting part of that, the act of clearing out that malfunction or doing whatever you need to do is the only skill part involved in that. It's all attributes before that. And then once you actually try to, and once you actually implement that, that act, you have to then step back and say, okay, did that work? And that takes learnability and it takes a re kind of assessment. So, so situational awareness comes in again. So I remember when it happened to me, I was, again, these things happen so quickly, it's hard to discern until after the, the event. But I remember being pretty pleased with the way I handled it because I was able to immediately and calmly assess the situation, prioritize what was going on, make a decision, act, clear out my, my, my malfunction, assess that it worked, and then, and then of course, uh, continue on for a safe uh, parachute landing. So, so it was a really kind of truncated environment, but uh, that would be one story, and I kind of describe how that works in the book as well. That begs the question, what groomed you or what prepared you to have that kind of composure? Well, now that's a great question, and I don't know if I know the answer. <laughs> I, think, um, I think that we're, again, I think uh, anybody, especially in the SEAL environment, anybody who makes it through SEAL training does so because we already have a preponderance of the attributes required to be a Navy SEAL. That's the beauty of the SEAL training process. And, and so because we have a preponderance of those attributes, we are better prepared to deal with these types of environments. And, and the, the, the way I kind of learned this was, you know, I'm, I live in a neighborhood and, and, and just on my street alone, I have three other Navy SEALs, you know, on my street. I have one across the street. I have one down the road to my left and one down the road to my right. And I remember my wife once saying, she said, you know, I'm so glad these guys are in the neighborhood. Um, and I said, why? She said, because if anything ever happened, if you weren't here and everything, anything ever happens, I could always go to them and they, they would act exactly like you act. And I said, well, tell me more. What does that mean? And she said, well, it means that they would immediately calm down. They wouldn't freak out and they would just start working the problem. And I realized, man, that's, that's a pretty, it's a, it's a, it's a common, um, if not, you know, necessary required trait of Navy SEALs, right? We just have the attributes that allow us to immediately calm in situations of stress and start thinking through the problem. Was there something in your home environment or in your parents' parenting style perhaps that enabled you to have more of a preponderance of these uh, desirable attributes? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And I would say that the the answer may feel, it certainly does to me, a little counterintuitive um, because I growing up was pretty much an average kid. I had a really nice childhood. Um, I was an average student. I was an average athlete. Um, there was really nothing special, um, you know, about me or my brothers and sisters, you know, that, that you would, I guess, quantify or qualify as like special, like valedictorians or, or, uh, or lettermen in the, you know, varsity sports or anything like that. Um, and, uh, and when you know, my twin brother and I always wanted to be Navy pilots since we were, you know, since we were like six or seven years old. So we always had kind of this vision of being in the military and flying, uh, flying military jets. And it was, um, it was, it was, it was the, after the first Gulf War, so it was the early nineties when I actually realized or learned what Navy SEALs were. And I remember learning about that and said, man, these guys seem cool. They, they seem like they do everything. I love the underwater stuff. I love the fact that they, 
came from the water and they did all this cool stuff. And I always loved James Bond and it seems very, it seemed very James Bondy. And so I, you know, went to Purdue and was in Navy RTC and decided, you know what, I want to, I want to try that. I never wanted to be a, a pilot and kind of wonder if I could have ever been a Navy SEAL. So I decided to go and, and, you know, I went to training and, and I got through training and training is interesting because you go to SEAL training. Um, and again, it's BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training there in San Diego, California. And, um, and the attrition rates are very, very high. I mean, our class, for example, started with 160 or so people and we graduated 38 and that's, that's normal numbers. Right. Um, and I remembered, uh, being there and looking around at the other 37 guys who were graduating with me and wondering how the heck I got there and saying, man, I, it seems like I'm surrounded by these, just these rock stars. And, um, how, how, how can I, how do I fit in here? How did I make it? You know? And that scene, that, that was almost a predominant question throughout my whole SEAL career. Now it wasn't in a debilitating way or a, or a, um, or a low self-image or self-esteem way. It was really more of a curious way because I never, I always, I always kind of tried to put myself deliberately around people I thought were better than me. Um, ah, now that's, that's a very important, yeah. interesting point. I just like to point, point that out to listeners. You, you know, it sounds to me like you, you didn't have necessarily uh, people who were coaching you or giving you different, you know, put, putting you in difficult situations where you had to come out. You didn't have to do things on your own necessarily, but it kind of speaks to what you said earlier that we all have these innate attributes and then you often put yourself in challenging situations. Could you say that's perhaps how you developed Certainly hyper-developed the ones I was, I was, uh, I was predominant in, I think some of the other ones that I'm not as high in, I still try to, I still try to actively develop because again, developing an attribute is a little harder. So, you know, learnability, I I think I'm, for me learning something, my learnability on a scale of one to 10 is a little bit lower (laughs) than I'd like it to be. In other words, it takes me a while to learn something. I, I, I I tend to sometimes make the same mistakes two or three times before I actually learn something. Um, whereas we, we know people who you tell them something once and they got it, they, they, I mean, and they move on. There's no, it's just that fast. Those, those folks are typically higher on learnability. And so, um, and so in those cases, I had to just an understanding of that about myself made me say, okay, I need to spend extra time on this. You know, I need to, I need to be more deliberate than this other guy because it's going to take me a little bit more time. So, so this, these environments of challenge that I maybe deliberately put myself in allowed me to understand myself better in a way that uh helped me exploit the things i was strong at and then and then actively and proactively the w- work on the things that i was uh, a little bit weaker at because they were necessary in the conduct of my of my job i find fascinating about what you're sharing rich is that you know you really do show that you had this kind of positive proactive outlook about your life and that you weren't held back by your fear but rather you were inspired by taking on challenges that kind of required that you stretch yourself. You had that growth mindset and you took on challenges over time that enabled you to develop these attributes and you became stronger as a result of your openness to taking on challenges. Would you say that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. I would, say, I would say the latter. I, I, I actually don't, I, I, I stay away from the word fearless because again, a courage is an attribute. And, um, and when you start to deconstruct what courage actually is, is, Courage cannot exist in the absence of fear. Fear is actually what's required for us to decide to move into 
what we are afraid of. And therefore, when that happens, it's a neurological switch. There's actually a switch in our brain that, uh, that is tripped when we decide to move into our fear. And once that happens, we're actually uh, biologically rewarded. Our, 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 our body gives us a burst of dopamine. So, so we are designed to, to be biologically rewarded when we step into our fear. And that's, enc that's encouraging us to keep on moving forward. This is why we're inherently explorers and discoverers. This is what, the, what caused us to go from cave dwellers to space explorers. And so, so I always kind of warn, I was actually warned by a, a, a senior officer when I was a junior officer said, hey, beware the fearless leader because that, that person is likely going to get you killed because fear is actually designed uh, as a good thing. The fear is designed so that we are able to see and assess risk. Um, and if and if we if we aren't a, if we aren't able to see that if, if someone is truly fearless, uh, they're likely going to run off the edge of a cliff without understanding what the risk is. So fear is a good thing. Uh, fear is designed to be a good thing. It's our ability to push through it that allows us to enable and enact the courage switch. And I think that's what I began to do, and certainly seals do uh, quite habitually. I recognize that. And I'm so glad that you emphasize that point because anyone going into an interview, you know, most people are fearful of interviews or fearful of public speaking. But once you prepare yourself and you do one time, like baby steps, you do, do it well one time, you build on your track record. Don't forget to look back at our track record of what we've done well. I mean, we're making transitions all the time. We're starting from starting preschool all the way through college and then our first internships, jobs, et cetera we're always adjusting moves and uh, relationships. So I, I think it's wise to tell, not, tell our children, tell you know, ourselves that it's not something that we should avoid. Transition and discomfort is, and is something that helps us grow, but beautifully stated as, as Rich uh, you know, clarifies and, and makes a very clear case in his book that we need to really embrace it. And recognize you go into that fear, and then you develop. Yeah, that. yeah. Well, and 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 honestly, we have there's there's physical examples of this in our world that all of us readily accept. We just don't reapply to our total growth process. Anytime any one of us gets into the gym, for example, and lifts a weight, what's happening is we're tearing that muscle. That's what's happened when you lift weights. You're tearing the muscle, um, so that you recover. The muscle grows and uh, and repairs. And when it repairs, it's it's become bigger and stronger. And so, so the, the challenge, that tearing process is necessary for growth. And that's how we can look at stress challenge and, um, and uncertainty in our lives. It's a tearing process that if recovered from properly is necessary for growth. Fabulous analogy. So just for the sake of time, Rich, I could go on all day listening to you because I love this topic and I find it fascinating, all of your wisdom and insights. But I want to ask one last question, which is what is your best career advice to be resolute in the outcome uh, but be flexible in the pathway uh, because life and the environment is never i say never and i could say that almost definitively but i'll say almost never <laughs> so i'm not i'm not so definitive but almost never going to go the way we planned it to go and so i think people get stuck sometimes when they're in pursuit of a goal, uh, because things don't seem to be going the way they thought they would go. And I think rock climbers, I don't climb, I don't climb rocks because I don't like heights, but, but rock climbers can actually teach us a lot about this because a rock climber will stand at the base of a cliff and look at the top and say, okay, I'm getting to the top. Right. And then that rock climber will proceed to start climbing up the face of that 
of that uh, cliff. And that uh, rock climber will begin to, as they climb, look for knot holes and footholds that they can use so that they can progress up that uh, cliffside. Now, sometimes they're going to look around and they're going to find that the best knot hold or foothold is down and below them, right? It's maybe down and right, which means they're going to have to temporarily move away from their goal, the top, so that they can get a better foothold and look again, right? So, so in the pursuit of our overall outcomes, we have to understand that sometimes uh, it may feel like we're moving away, but it's only probably so we can get a better foothold. So be resolute in the outcome, uh, but be flexible in the approach. So I love your idea about resolute in the outcomes, because what that really says is, you know, the outcome you're not really in control of. So you might as well really do your due diligence. Allow yourself over the course of your career to, to seek out challenging situations that will help you develop your skill set, both your hard and your soft skills. And, and don't shy away from them. That's courage. And it's not about being fearless, as Rich said. It's about opening yourself to new opportunities, to building and developing that muscle, the muscle of being willing to take on new challenges and open yourself to learning and to growth. And ultimately, those attributes will serve you and they'll help you become a high performer and become more resilient and more effective in your role. So thanks so much for your wisdom, Rich. This is great. I really am glad you were able to come on Breakthroughs. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Beth, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone, just a quick shout out to thank all of you who are already subscribers and who are following this podcast and for all of you who rated and reviewed it. It really helps me know what matters to you, what you like, what you want to see more of. And for those of you who haven't subscribed yet but are listening, please subscribe, share with your friends. It's all free, and I want to bring you, continue to bring you, the best thought leaders industry-wide who have career advice that could help you catapult your career, no matter what field you're in. And the advice will also enable you to become a high performer. And if you're looking to become more of a high performer and want to know more about Rich Diveny's book, then I would highly recommend checking out my podcast notes. I'll make sure to have a link there to The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. It's available on Amazon. And again, I'll have it in my podcast notes. Thanks for listening.